0: Hi and welcome back to Chronicles The Hundred Years War. This week we're gonna be continuing chapter 18 and we're going to be further looking into Edward III's attempt to take war to the Scots in the hopes of preventing them from further raiding within the north of England. We've seen so far in this chapter a bit of difference of lifestyle and management. Certainly the Scots came through on a very light raiding party they carried the minimum amount as many of them were on horseback even if those horses weren't traditional chargers and they moved very quickly and so they've been forcing the English to adapt to them so far the English have had to lower the amount of purveyance, victuals and accessories that they're bringing with them so they can move at a higher speed but that's already started to cause problems where the English can do that in a short term, but trying to do that on a long term is not something they're prepared to do on a logistical level. And I think also just on a personal level, they're just not prepared to go without for as long as uh, the Scots are. Certainly the English nobility would presumably be accustomed to certain way of living. And while they can, and you'll see further down the road that they can definitely rough it if they have to, while they're in their own backyard, I doubt they're feeling like they should have to. In fact, when we had last left the English, they had literally just ordered from the nearest towns, whatever they could get in terms of bread and wine and such things and have them brought to their camp. On that note, I'm gonna dive back in to chapter 18, part two. And thus they continued day by day the space of eight days, abiding every day the returning again of the Scots, who knew no more where the English host lay than they knew where they were, so each of them were ignorant of the other. Thus three days and three nights were in manner without wine, bread, candle or light, fodder or forage, or any manner of purveyance, either for horse or man, And after the space of four days, a loaf of bread was sold for a sixpence, the which was worth but a penny, and a gallon of wine for six groats that was worth but a sixpence. And yet for all that, there was such rage of famine that each took victuals out of others' hands, whereby there rose diverse battles and strifes between sundry companions. And yet beside all these mischiefs, it never ceased to rain the whole week, whereby their saddles, panels, and countersignals were all rotten and broken, and most part of their horses hurt on their backs. Nor they had wherewith to shoe them that were unshod, nor they had nothing to cover themselves with all from the rain and cold but green bushes and their armour, nor they had nothing to make fire with all but green bows, the which would not burn because of the rain. In this great mischief they were all the week without hearing any word of the Scots. Upon trust they should repass again into their own countries the same way or near thereabout whereby great noise and murmur began to rise in the host. For some said, and laid it to others' charge, that by their counsel the king and all they were brought into that danger, and that they had done it to betray the king and all his host. Wherefore it was ordained by the king and by his counsel that the next morning they should remove the host and repass again the river about seven mile thence, whereas they might pass more at their ease. Then it was cried throughout the host that every man should be ready apparelled to move the next day betimes. Also, there was a cry made that whosoever could bring to the king certain knowledge where the Scots were, he that brought first tidings thereof should have for his labour a hundred pounds of land to him and to his heirs forever, and then be made a knight of the king's hand. When this cry was made in the host, diverse English knights and squires to the number of 15 or 16, were covetous of winning of this promise, they passed the river in great peril and rode forth through the mountains and departed each one from the other, taking their adventure. The next morning, the host dislodged and rode fair and easily all the day. For they were but evil apparelled, and did so much that they repassed again the river without much pain and travail. For the water was deep because of the rain that had fallen. Wherefore many did swim, and some were drowned. And when they were all over, then they lodged the host, and there they found some forage, meadows, and fields about a little village. The which the Scots had brent when they passed that way. And the next day they departed from thence and passed over hills and dales all day until it was noon. And then they found some villages brent by the Scots. And thereabout was some champagne country with corn and meadows. And so that night the host lodged there. Again the third day they rode forth so that the most part of the host wist not which way. For they knew not the country nor they could hear no tidings of the Scots. And again, the fourth day, they rode forth in like manner until it was about an hour of three. translator's note, looks like there's been a bit of a mistranslation from the original text. The correct time here should be nine o'clock in the morning, not three o'clock as the translator has it. And there came a squire fast riding towards the king and said, and in like your grace i have brought you perfect tidings of the scots your enemies surely they be within three mile of you lodged on a great mountain abiding there for you and there they have been all this eight days nor they knew no more tidings of you than ye did of them sir this that i show you is truth for i approached so near to them that i was taken prisoner and brought before the lords of their host And there I showed them tidings of you and how you seek for them to the intent to have battle. And the Lords did quit me my ransom and prison when I had showed them how your grace had promised a hundred pounds sterling of rent to him that brought first tidings of them to you. And they made me promise that I should not rest till I had showed you this tidings. For they said they had as great desire to fight you as ye had with them. And there shall you find them without fault. As soon as the king had heard this tidings, he assembled all his host in a fair meadow to pasture their horses. And beside there was a little abbey, the which was all brent, called in the days of King Arthur, Le Blanche. There the king confessed him, and every man made him ready. The king caused many masses to be sung, to housel all such as had devotion thereto, and incontinent he assigned a hundred pounds sterling of rent to the squire that had brought him tidings of the Scots according to his promise, and made him a knight with his own hands before all the host. And when they had well rested them and taken repast, then the trumpet sounded to horse and every man mounted, and the banners and standard followed this new made knight, Every battle by itself in good order through the mountains and dales ranged as well as they might, ever ready apparel to fight. And they rode and made such haste that about noon they were so near the Scots that each of them might clearly see the other. And as soon as the Scots saw them, they issued out of their lodges afoot and ordained three great battles in the availing of the hill. And at the foot of the mountain, there ran a great river full of great rocks and stones so that none might pass over without great danger or jeopardy. And though the Englishmen had passed over the river, yet there was no place nor room between the hill and the river to set the battle in good order. The Scots had stabilised their first two battles at the two corners of the mountain, joining to the rocks, so that none might well mount upon the hill to assail them. But the Scots were ever ready to beat with stones the assailants if they passed the river, and when the Lords of England saw the behaviour and manning of the Scots, They made all their people to alight afoot and put off their spurs and arranged three great battles as they had done before. And there were made many new knights. And when their battles were set in good order, then some of the lords of England brought their young knights a horseback before all the battles of the host to the intent to give thereby the more courage to all his people. The which king in full goodly manner prayed and required them right graciously that every man would pay them to do their best to save his honour and common weal of his realm. And it was commanded upon pain of death that none should go before the marshals' banners nor break their array without they were commanded. And then the king commanded that they should advance towards their enemies fair and easily, and so they did. And every battle went forth in good array and order, a great space of ground to the descending of the mountains whereas the Scots were. And this the English host did to the intent to see if their enemies would break their field or not and to see what they would do but when they could not perceive that they were about to remove in any wise they were so near together that they might well know each other's arms then the host stood still to take other counsel and some of the host mounted on good horses and rode forth to skirmish with them and to behold the passage of the river and to see the countenance of their enemies more nearer and there were heralds of arms sent to the scots giving them knowledge If they would come and pass the river to fight with them in the plain field, they would draw back from the river and give them sufficient place to arrange their battles either the same day or else the next, as they would choose themselves or else to let them do likewise and they would come over to them. And when the Scots heard this, they took counsel among themselves and anon they answered the heralds how they would do neither the one nor the other and said. Sirs, your king and his lords, see well how we be here in this realm, and have brent and wasted the country as we have passed through. And if they be despised therewith, let them amend it when they will, for here we will abide as long as it shall please us. And as soon as the king of England heard that answer, it was incontinent cried that all the host should lodge there that night without reculing back. And so the host lodged there that night with much pain on the hard ground and stones, still always armed. They had no stakes nor rods to tie with all their horses, nor forage nor bush to make with all any fire." And when they were thus lodged, then the Scots caused some of their people to keep still the field, whereas they had ordained their battles. And the remnant went to their lodgings, and they made such fires that it was a marvel to behold. And between the day and the night, they made a marvelous great ruid, with blowing of horns all at once, that it seemed properly that all the devils of hell had been there. Thus these two hosts were lodged that night, the which was St. Peter's night, in the beginning of August, the year of our Lord, MCCXXVII. The next morning the lords of England heard mass and ranged again in their battles as they had done the day before. And the Scots in likewise ordered their battles. Thus both the hosts stood still in battle till it was noon. The Scots made never semblant to come to the English host to fight with them, nor in likewise the Englishmen to them, for they could not approach together without great damage. There were diverse companions of horseback that passed the river and some afoot to skirmish with the Scots and likewise some of the Scots break out and skirmished with them so that there were diverse on both parties slain, wounded and taken prisoners. And after that noon was passed, the Lords of England commanded that every man to draw to their lodgings for they saw well the Scots would not fight with them. And in the like manner they did three days together and the Scots in like case kept still their mountains howbeit there was a skirmishing on both parties and diverse slain and prisoners taken, and every night the Scots made great fires and great bruit with shouting and blowing of horns. The intention of the Englishmen was to hold the Scots there in the manner as besieged, for they could not fight with them there as they were, thinking to have famished them. And the Englishmen knew well by such prisoners as they had taken that Scots had neither bread, wine, nor salt, nor other purveyance save of beasts they had great plenty, the which they had taken in the country and might eat at their pleasure without bread, which was an evil diet, for it lacked oaten meal to make cakes withal. As is said before, the witch diet some of the Englishmen used when they needed, especially borderers when they make roads into Scotland. And in the morning the fourth day, the Englishmen looked on the mountain whereas the Scots were, and they could see no creature, for the Scots were departed at midnight. Then was there sent men a horseback and a foot over the river to know where they were become and about noon they found them lodged on another mountain more stronger than the other was by the same riverside, and where there was a great wood on one side to go and come secretly when they list. Then incontinent the English host dislodged and drew to that part, embattled in good order, and lodged them on another hill against the Scots, and ranged their battles, and made semblant to have come to them. Then the Scots issued out of their lodges and set their battles along the riverside against them, but they would never come towards the English host and the Englishmen could not go to them without they would have been slain or taken at advantage. Thus they lodged each against other the space of 18 days. And oftentimes the King of England sent to them with his herald of arms offering them that if they would come fight with him, he would give them place sufficient on the plain ground to pitch their field or else let them give him room and place, and he assured them that he would come over the river and fight with them. But the Scots would never agree thereto. Thus both hosts suffered much pain and travail, the space that they lay so near. And the first night the English host was thus lodged on the second mountain, Lord William Douglas took with him about two hundred men of arms and passed the river far off the host, so that he was not perceived. And suddenly he brake into the English host about midnight, crying, Douglas, Douglas, Ye shall all die, ye English barons. And he slew, or he ceased, three hundred men, some in their beds and some scant ready. And he stake his horse with the spurs and came to the king's own tent, always crying, Douglas, and strake asunder two or three cords of the king's tent, and so departed. And in that retreat he lost some of his men. Then he returned to the Scots, so that there was no more done. But every night the English host made good and sure watch, for they doubted making of scries, and ever the most part of the host lay in their harness. And every day there were skirmishes made, and men slain on both parties. And in conclusion, the last day of twenty-four, there was a Scottish knight taken, who against his will, showed to the Lords of England what state and condition the Scots were in. He was so sore examined that for fear of his life he showed how the Lords of Scotland were recorded among themselves that the same night every man should be ready armed and to follow the banners of the Lord William Douglas and every man to keep him secret, but the knight could not show them what they intended to do. Then the Lords of England drew them to the council, and there it was thought among them that the Scots might in the night time come and assail their host on both sides to adventure themselves either to live or die they could not endure no longer the famine that was among them then the english lords ordained three great battles and so stood in three parties without their lodgings and made great fires thereby to see the better and caused all their pages to keep their lodgings and horses thus they stood still all night armed every man under his own standard and banner and in the breaking of the day two trumpets of scotland met with the english scout watch who took the trumpets and brought them before the King of England and his council. And then they said openly, Sirs, what do you watch here? Ye lose but your time for on the jeopardy of our heads, the Scots are gone and departed before midnight. And they are at the least by this time, three or four mile on their way. And they left us behind to the intent that we should show this to you. Then the English lords said that it were but a folly to follow the Scots, for they saw well that they could not overtake them. Yet for doubt of deceiving, they kept still the two trumpeters privily, and caused their battles to stand still arranged till it was near prime. Then when they saw for the truth that the Scots had departed, and every man had leave to retray to their lodgings, and the lords took counsel to determine what should be best to do. And in the meantime, diverse of the English host mounted on their horses and passed over the river and came to the mountain where the Scots had been. And there they found more than 500 great beasts ready slain because the Scots could not drive them before their host and because the Englishman should have but small profit of them. Also there they found three hundred cauldrons made of bee skins with the hair still on them, strained on stakes over the fire, full of water and full of flesh to be sodden, and more than a thousand spits of full flesh to be roasted, and more than ten thousand old shoes made of raw leather with the hair still on them, which the Scots had left behind. Also there they found five poor Englishmen prisoners, bound fast to certain trees, and some of their legs broken then they were loosed and let go and then they returned again and by that time all the host was dislodged and it was ordained by the king and by the advice of his council that the whole host should follow the marshals banners and draw homeward into england and so they did and at the last came into a fair meadow Whereas they found forage sufficient for their horses and carriage, whereof they had great need, for they were nigh so feeble that it should have been great pain for them to have gone any further. The English chronicle saith that the Scots had been fought withal, and Sir Roger Mortimer, a lord of England, had not betrayed the king, for he took meed and money of the Scots to the intent that they might depart privily by night and fought withal as it may seem more plainly in the English Chronicle and diverse other matters, the which I pass over at this time and follow mine author. And so the next day, the host dislodged again and went forth, and about noon they came to a great abbey two mile from the city of Durham, And there the king lodged, and the host there about in the fields, whereas they found forage sufficient for themselves and for their horses. And the next day the host lay there still, and the king went to the city of Durham to see the church, and in this city every man found their own carriages." Editors note, carriages in this section is largely interchangeable for carts for baggage rather than baggage itself. It can be translated as chariots or charrettes or some similar word, but it is largely referring to a tool that you can use to carry baggage the which they had left thirty-two days before in a wood at midnight, and when they followed the Scots first, as it had been showed before. For the Burgess and the people of Durham had found and brought them into their town at their own costs and charges, and all these carriages were set in void granges and barns in safeguard, and on every man's carriage his own cognizance or arms, whereby every man might know his own. And the lords and gentlemen were very glad they had thus found their carriages. Thus they abode two days in the city of Durham and the host round about, for they could not all lodge in the city, and there their horses were new shod. And when they took their way to the city of York, and so within three days they came thither, and there the king found the queen his mother, who received him with great joy, and so did all other ladies, damsels and burgesses and commons of the city. The king gave license to all manner of people, every man to draw homeward to their own counties, And the king thanked greatly the earls, barons, and knights of their good counsel and aid that they had done him in his journey, and he still retained with him Sir John Henault, and all his company who were greatly feasted by the queen and all other ladies. Then the knights and other strangers of his company made a bill of their horses and such other stuff as they had lost in that journey and delivered it to the king's council every man by itself. And in the trust of the king's promise, Sir John of Henault, Lord Beaumont, bound himself to all his company that they should be content for everything comprised in their own bills without a short space. For the king nor his council could not soon recover gold or silver to content their desires. But he delivered them sufficient by reason to pay all their small charges and to bring them home withal into their own countries. And anon after within the same year, they were paid for everything they could desire. Then they of Hinault bought little nags to ride at their ease, and sent back their lackeys and pages, and all their harness and baggages by water in two ships that was delivered to them. The which ships with their stuff arrived at Slees in Flanders. And so John of Hinault and his company took their leave of the king, of the old queen, of the Earl of Kent, of the Earl of Lancaster, and of the other barons who greatly did honour them. And the king caused twelve knights and two hundred men of arms to accompany them, for doubt of the archers of England, of whom they were not well assured, for they must needs pass through the bishopric of Lincoln. Thus departed Sir John of Henault and his rout in the conduct of these knights, and rode so long in their journey that they came to Dover, and there entered into the sea in ships and vessels that they found ready there apparelled for them. Then the English knights departed from thence and returned to their own houses. And the Hanoans arrived in Wissant, and there they sojourned two days in the making ready their horses and harness. And in the meantime, Sir John of Henault and some of his company rode a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Boulogne. And after they returned into Henault and departed each from other to their own houses and countries. So John of Hanault wrote to the Earl his brother, who was at Valencians, who received him joyously, for he greatly loved him, to whom he recounted all his tidings that ye have heard here before. All right, so that is the end of chapter 18. Was a bit of a low one, but it was an interesting chapter. And so it's something that is worth discussing here that ultimately Edward didn't get anywhere. He did force the Scots to leave, but he didn't actually defeat their army. There's nothing stopping the Scots from just coming back tomorrow and raiding England again. There's nothing confirmed from the English side that the Scots ever even disbanded. For all we know, the Scots have been spending this time collecting food, recovering their strength, and they're about to cross the border again. And so there's a little bit of a comparison here because Edward II, when he was brought to trial, one of the things that he was tried on was losing the kingdom of Scotland and losing battles to the kingdom of Scotland by poor counsel. And Edward III hasn't done much better here, but there's also no murmurings of discontent. He comes back to the city, everyone's happy, people are happy, his mother's happy, the lords seem happy, and that might initially seem like a bit of a double standard, but there's a couple of things going on here. The first one is that Edward is a new ruler. Anytime a new ruler comes in, in most cases, then they do get somewhat of a honeymoon period. People are hopeful and optimistic about what they can do. Edward comes from a good lineage that took a bad step, but the memory of Edward I fighting the Scots is alive and well. and even though he didn't really go out and win a battle that would be better, I think there's something to be said for the fact that Edward sort of fulfills a number of the virtuous ideals of a warrior king. He is someone who has status and money, but shares it in a way that's relevant. A 100 pounds is a good reward, we've certainly heard compared to how much someone makes a year if they're a plowman, then 100 pounds is a lot. But 100 pounds that you inherit and that you pass on to your heirs is a huge deal. That's enough money for your families to live on for generations. Making knights, as is done a number of times, is a tried and true tradition of battle. It's a good way to raise morale in this kind of time and society. And it's a good way to make sure those Knights are feeling like they're going to go out and really give it a hundred percent the next day. And you don't have to make everyone Knights to generate that kind of effect. You just need to make them believe that that's possibly in their future and make your existing Knights sort of feel that same pride and camaraderie. That's going to make them feel like they're part of an elite team, that they have special duties that they need to uphold because being a Knight stands for something and. Those kind of things really contribute to the societal inertia that's kind of inherent in monarchies. Once a monarchy is stably established, there is a level of inertia that goes along with, he's the king, so we need to do what he says, we need to support him. And we saw that kind of break down with Edward II, but it took a long time. It took a lot of things going wrong, and it ultimately took... A strong enough group of barons to then say, we have enough power to push back against you. The English peerage and nobility had threatened Edward I when things got really unpalatable, but Edward I had had enough sense to just say, well, I won't do that then. Clearly, you've established a line and I don't want to cross it. Edward II failed to have that sense and was commonly just tossed over the line by his favorites, blind to the ramifications that it would have. And so Edward III is squarely on the other side of things. He is coming back into town and he's thanking all the knights and barons. He's paying wages for the Hinaultas who have come over. And he's showing that he has foreign allies that will back him in battle. He is doing a number of things that I think help establish and protect that cultural inertia That helps empower him as being a king, a figure of authority who is theoretically unquestioned. A couple of other things I want to draw attention to there. First of all, I want to draw attention to the idea of commonweal, which came up there in the speech when the two armies were facing each other. Anyone who is from a Country like England or one of its colonies like Australia or the Caribbean islands will be familiar with the concept of being a Commonwealth country. That is exactly the same thing. Commonwealth directly corresponds to common weal, the benefit of everyone, the common good. And that's how it's phrased in writings of this time. The next thing I want to talk about is the concept of offering, quotes, a fair fight. When you're dealing with another enemy, something that's going to come up a couple of times when two or more groups of people face off against each other is if someone's at a particular advantage or disadvantage, they'll often send a messenger over and say, How about you do the honorable thing? And we find a nice flat patch of ground and we just lay our armies out and let the best man win. And almost universally, that idea is absolutely rejected. You know, Edward offered a number of times to the Scots, Why don't you? stop being on high ground protected by a river and woods and come out to a field with me and we'll fight or you can find a space that you like that's flat and fair and I'll go over to you and then we'll fight there. Obviously a terrible idea, the Scots don't go for it. It may seem strange in this day and age but it was remarkably common at that point to just at least give it a go and I mean what did you have to lose? Moving on, there is a mention of removing spurs. So obviously the English knights brought horses with them and common wisdom at this point in time, especially in Western Europe, says that the best thing that you can do if you have horses and your opponent doesn't is to just mass charge them on horses. The mass coverage charge has been one of the big maneuvers, if not the big maneuver for a little while now. And so the idea of getting off your horse, removing your spurs, putting them aside is maybe a little against conventional wisdom. It's sort of not the done thing because really what you're trying to do is get the other group onto a piece of land where your horses can charge them. If you acknowledge that's just not happening, then I'm sure at the time, there would have been plenty of people who have argued that you've just failed to maneuver and that you need to pull back or you need to push them into a new position or find another tactic. In fact, that's quite possibly what was sort of being prompted with attempts to starve the Scots out, even though the English were clearly starving. They said when they got back to England, they were so ill and frail and desperate for food that they stopped at the first field they found and recovered their strength to, because to move on would be an extreme hardship. And so I think there's a very real possibility that the siege attempt in order to starve the Scots into submission, despite them having ready access to as much meat as they wanted to have, was realistically to either force them to attack or try and force them into another position, which is theoretically an idea that sounds good to me, but considering the English had already proven that they had anything but a home turf advantage and the Scots had managed to pull out at midnight once and then a second time, It really doesn't seem like a feasible plan to me. I don't know that there's a better option, but honestly, at some point you've got to cut your losses and waiting until the Scots finally just decided that it wasn't going to work and left seems like it was an unnecessary amount of hardship, though I suppose we are going to see a fair amount of that in the name of things like honor and saving face. So not all that strange. All right, with that being said, I'm gonna try and wrap this episode up. It's been a bit of a long one already. The final thing I wanna touch on is the Scottish tactics in this battle because I think they actually made a number of decisions which do make a lot of sense to me as an armchair strategist. First of all, they set a number of fires. They make it seem like there's a big group of them, but they also make clear the juxtaposition between the Scots and the English. The English talk a lot about how it's rocky. There's nowhere to rest. They don't have food or purveyances, and they don't have fires or purveyances for their horses, even. The Scots sound like they're having a party every night. And they're having fires, they're roasting food, which at some point the smell would have come across when the wind changed to be the right way. And the English, even before they found the Scots, were at the point where they were fighting over food. So smelling, roasting beasts of whatever kind, whether they be elk or hart or boar or anything else, is sure to be an absolute nightmare. That being paired with the fact that you can't sleep when there are so many horns being blown at the same time that it sounds like all the devils of hell are across the river from you is basically enhanced interrogation techniques or as close as you might get as an impromptu medieval force can put together. Pairing that with the attack of William Douglas, making sure that not only do the English feel unsafe, William and his troops make it far enough into the English camp that they attack Edward's tent itself, that's gonna mean that you're on high alert, you're nervous, you're jumping at sounds, and so the morale would have taken a massive dip, anxieties would have gone right up there, wondering when the next attack is gonna be. Certainly, it's a big prestige get for William Douglas as well. His troops would have all been crying his name as they go in. As this time period is a period before mass adoption of uniforms. People would have an agreed upon battle cry that they went into battle with and they would identify themselves with that battle cry. And so it would have been a surprising and loud cry of Douglas throughout the camp. And everybody would have known who managed to attack the English and got away with it. Certainly that's gonna be something that you can take to the bank as far as reputation goes. So all in all, if I were to rack this one up, I would say that while the English ultimately have achieved their goal for the time being of forcing the Scotsman to leave England, ultimately the Scots won a lot more than they lost. They got to leave with everything they took, They got to leave without any kind of major reprisals or losses of troops or status. And they did it in a way that caused a significant drain on the English ability to field soldiers. Those soldiers will be glad to be home. They would not be excited to go out into the field again. And the showing of leadership that they experienced was virtuous, but not necessarily exceptionally competent. With the English starting off moving slowly, abandoning their goods, getting lost, getting hungry, not actually managing to succeed in any measurable amount means that I think a lot of people probably ended up going home dejected. The threat may have ended for the time being, but ultimately, I don't think a lot of Englishmen would have felt like this was a particular win. Anyway, I'm gonna wrap things up for there. We've made it through chapter 18. So next week we'll be able to start in on chapter 19, which means there is going to be a marriage. King Edward III of England is going to marry Lady Philippa of Hanolt, which will be quite exciting. And if we have time, we might touch in again with Scotland and hear about how King Robert of Scotland is doing i hope those topics are enough to entice you to come back and listen to this podcast again next week and enjoy more chronicles the hundred years war see you then